welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey, 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 everybody. Welcome back to another Knock On Podcast. Sorry I've been distant, but guess what? It was the holidays, and I wanted to enjoy myself and my family. So, um, but now I'm here at a pretty dang interesting place with a cool guest, um, Dr. Carl Miller, and I guess you were introduced to me as a distinguished professor of deer management at the University of Georgia. Yeah, when you get old, you get special titles. I, guess. <laughs> I was going <laughs> to say, sometimes, sometimes people want that exact special title, too. I never want a title of any sort. I just tell people, call me whatever you want. Yeah, I like it when my kids call me dad. That's, that's, <laughs> that's the title I like. <laughs> that's perfect. Um, we've we've been at a pretty interesting place here in on the eastern shore um, doing some, a little bit of late season deer hunting and getting to know each other. And, uh, you're a fascinating dude, man. No question about it. And honestly, there's, I've met a lot of wildlife biologists and just like with anything, there's always levels, you know, there's like levels of, there's archers, there's like, there's coaches that have level four coaching degrees but then when i see them coach i'm like i don't really think they're really getting across they're certified but they're not like they're not like engulfed in your field but you're one of these guys where you're making me nervous what level are you going to put me at here uh, i would say level 10 <laughs> yeah level 10 why don't you tell me a little bit about um and not just me the listeners tell us about how detailed and in-depth um, your studies are going right now at the university down there because you have an amazing operation. I can't wait to go see it, but it, it, it looks super extensive. Yeah, we, we've had the University of Georgia Deer Lab. I've been kind of in charge of that for well, 32 years now since I've, I've been working on the faculty down there. And I have had some incredible teams of graduate students, some really bright kids that have done some tremendous work uh, a lot of it focused around, a lot of our work has been focused around deer sensory perception, uh, how they use their nose, their vision, their, their, their hearing, uh, trying to understand why do deer do what deer do. Yeah. And it's all based on how they perceive their environment. You know, you, you got to remember that de- these are prey species and they view the world very differently than we do as a predator. How many do you have there? We've got, a, we generally keep around 60 deer at one time. And then, uh, and so you're interacting with them daily? Uh, some of it, it depends on what the particular studies are, that we're doing. Sometimes we'll have some deer that are bottle raised, so they're relatively tame, and then some deer that are not, that are, that, that they're about as wild as wild deer are. Yeah. But we have some deer that we can bring into a, you know, our research facility where we've got individual stalls and we've got some equipment set up there, and they're pretty acclimated to that, which allows us to do some pretty neat things. Where did you start? for like research what what was your main interest for whitetails was it 
sight or sound or a lot of our original work that i did actually my phd dissertation was done with scent communication a lot of stuff with the signpost rubs and scrapes and stuff like that some of the original work that was done with, with rubs and scrapes was done at georgia when i was working on my phd with larry marginton and we did a number of different studies looking at the different glands that deer have and some of the products of those glands and how the deer use them in their you know communication particularly during the rut and then it after that it kind of morphed into looking more at vision and looking at the the sense of hearing so well let's just start with scent then what i mean when we stopped on the way here one of the guys we were with bought a bottle of scent free shampoo and i knew dang good and well we were getting ready to come someplace where i i kind of figured we were going to have breakfast being cooked in the morning i figured we're probably taking atvs out to to get to stands and it's been my experience that you know contamination it doesn't matter the amount like if there's contamination it's contamination so what's your thoughts on all this you know everybody seems to worry about a deer's sense of smell which is obviously a deer has a tremendous sense of smell but the sense of smell can be foiled. I mean, if you're downwind, there's no way a deer can smell you. Yep. If you're upwind, there's nothing you can do to keep from being smelled. Yep. So at that point, and I think people overemphasize the importance of the sense of smell and, and minimizing their scent and not worried as much as they should be about the other two, the sense of hearing and, the, and their deer's vision, which are what they rely on more than their sense of smell to avoid predation. They do? I'm yep. surprised by that. I, yep. figured, I figured like, Smell would be... Well, like I said, smell is extremely important, but it's it, it can only work one, one direction. It's unidirectional, oh. you know? So, you know, deer do rely on that. They rely probably on their sense of smell as much for finding food and for finding mates, you know, during the breeding season as they do as a predator avoidance. Yeah. The deer's sense of vision is much more important when it, when it comes to avoiding predation. What, um, so what are some of the key things then when it comes to vision... I, you know, and I guess just to backtrack a little bit on, on this, on the scent side of things, I get asked this all the time and I definitely think there's things that you can do to help it, but not perfect it. I feel like, you, I feel like you can help it. Like you can be less offensive, but you're still offensive. Oh, certainly minimizing scent's important, but eliminating scent is an impossibility. Right. right. And then, um, I just really have... It, especially with mature deer that I hunt, I just don't risk the wind. You know, it's I. It's like I have to assume that th- that w- my location choice is there a possibility of the deer I'm going after to be downwind, and if there is, it it can't be a risk. Right. Then you don't hunt the place. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um. One thing I've heard in the past and maybe you can confirm this is I've heard that, that deer, th- their sense of smell is almost layered. In other words, like if we smell a hamburger, we say, Oh, that's a hamburger. Whereas they can actually break it down and know that it's a bun. It's a hamburger patty. It's got lettuce, it's tomato. Can, I mean, are they able to dissect a certain amount of smell elements individually or? Well, I, I don't know who's got into inside a deer's head to that point where they can actually communicate <laughs> with the deer to the, Maybe that, figure that me. part out of it. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's probably extremely unlikely. Uh, you know, one of the things that's neat about the sense of smell, you know, one thing that we do know is deer have 
the sense of smell is built on a number of different things. One of it is the number of sensory receptors they have in their nasal epithelium in their, in their nose, which deer have a tremendous number uh, more than we do. But it's also built on specific receptors. You have to have specific receptors for specific odors. So all the different chemicals that a deer smell, they have to have receptor sites for those different chemicals. So it's conceivable that, they, you know, that there are certain scents that we might even be able to smell better than a deer if we have receptor sites that yeah. deer doesn't have receptor sites Because they've never had to just from an evolution point of right. view, right? It doesn't make sense for them to have those receptor sites. Yeah. But one thing we do know is those receptor sites that are important for them, they've got you know, orders of magnitude more than we do. How much is it, would you reckon? I, it's hard to say because you can't, in, uh, can't count individual receptor sites. Okay. Would you say they're – because you do hear people say a, a hound dog can smell X amount better than a human or a bear can smell X amount better. Do we really not know that? Well – Is it an assumption? It, it's, it's an assumption built on the, 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 the surface area of their nasal epithelium. But like I said, they have to have the certain receptor sites. So for some odors, a, a hound, a bloodhound may be able to smell, you know, how many thousands of times better at us for that particular odor. But for other odors, it might not be this, that much. So it, again, it comes back to the, the specific receptor sites. Yeah. Well, from a vision point of view, what what's their number one do you think that's their number one first they rely on their sight first and their, then their sense of vision is built to, as a as a sentinel sense to detect movement and it comes it boils down to that there are so many differences that, and this is the fascinating stuff that we've just got really got into in the last five or six five ten years is looking at the sense of vision and the world that they perceive is so different than the world we perceive out in the woods it's almost like we're on different planets because they see things so differently than we do. Actually, our eyes, as picking out a stationary object, our eyes, our vision capabilities at a stationary object is better than a deer's. And people can't believe that, you yeah. know, because you know how good a deer's vision is when it's yeah. in the woods. But they get, their, they get their visual acuity not from being able to identify an object, but they get it from movement because of the way their receptors, are, the, the rods and cones are distributed on their retina. So, you know... You've probably had the same experience. You you walk out into a field, you look out on the other end of the field, you see a deer standing out there, you say, there's a deer standing at the end of the field. What's the deer say? What's what that? Is, what is it? Yeah, what's yeah. that? And what's he trying to do? The deer kind of moves side to side, you know, walking side to side, trying to get you, you know, move your three-dimensional three perspective on that deer's, what does it, moves the image on the deer's retina. But then if you move, what happens? The then pick, then the, they identify. Yeah, it, so it, it's movement that... We identify objects, deer identify movement is the bottom line. So do you think the movement that they identify is based on more or less the shape or the way the movement, you know, I guess flows? For example, like a f it seems like deer are way more tolerable to a four-legged creature than when they see two. Like immediately that's an identifier for them. Yeah, I think that you know they can they can recognize what those individuals are once that once it is moving. Here, here's here's the interesting thing about a deer's eye. If you look at a human's eye, we're when our eyes when we're looking at things, we're looking at individual points in space. Our eyes are constantly moving, looking in all different directions. We're focusing on stuff that's very close, focusing on stuff that's very far. That's called accommodation. So it gives us a good opportunity to look at things in three dimensions, and it gives us a very good precise vision. 
But when a deer's looking at some at something, and you know, if people haven't looked at a deer's eyes, you can look at a horse's eyes because it's very similar. Instead of having a round pupil, they've got a slit. Yep. And that slit allows that light to come in from from the horizon. Mm-hmm. And what that, if you look at that, why that translates is in the back of the deer's on the deer's retinas, they have their rods and cones, and they have what is called their cones are distributed. Uh, one of the one of the cones is distributed in a band across the deer's retina. In a, it's called a visual streak, where ours are at a very individual point called our fovea centralis. So when a deer is looking at something, it's not moving its eyes at all. And you've probably seen a horse when, when you're standing in a pasture or a, ho- a car goes by, and what's the horse do? It just kind of stares into space, so right. to speak. Yeah. Because what that's doing is as it holds its eyes stationary, the image as that vehicle moves past moves that image across the retina and engages new cones as it's moving. So the, the deer's eye is not tracking the vehicle. The vehicle's moving inside the deer's eye. So they almost need that in order to really process it. Yeah, and that, that's, that's, how they get, they, that's how they get their visual acuity, but that's also how they can pick up movement so easily. Because for us to identify movement, we have to be able to track it with our eye. Okay. They just engage new cones as it's moving, which is why a deer can run through the woods, you know, at, at the speed they run through the woods, because what's happening is that whole vision is playing out as a panorama across the retina instead of having to track individual branches and sticks. and Yeah, because we're having to focus on specific points. Right. You know, here's a branch, look at it, duck, but then if there's another one right behind it that you didn't see right before that, then also now it's there, right? right. Yeah, and, and we can't keep up with all of them. That's why we end up falling and you never see a deer <laughs> fall, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And, you know, one of the things that we've, one of the neatest things that we've just done, uh, we haven't even published this yet, uh, so I probably shouldn't be telling you this, but uh, <laughs> but we, we we actually got it. There's a there's a a, a, a physiological mechanism called a, a flicker fusion rate, and a flicker fusion rate is basically a, a way of, of measuring how fast an animal can process visual images. So what I'm saying is you've probably seen these examples on on a, on a computer or something where you see a flashing light. Yep. And that light flashes faster and faster yep. and faster to a point where it looks like it's a stationary light. Right. And that's the point where your eyes can't process it any faster, even though it's still blinking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's how, you know, the old TVs used to work. On yeah, that. it looks flat, even though the, the refresh rates at a speed were, it's it's very high but you can only see it as a flat image right so we actually got inside the deer's eyes and figured out what their flicker fusion rate is, rate is compared to ours and it turns out they process images particularly at low light four times faster than we do wow so what what that means is every for every image that we would see one they would see four wow which again allows them to process that movement so much easier so when we're see when they see something in movement that we're trying to track they're almost seeing that in slow motion because they process it so fast. Yeah, yeah. What? So what do you think from, um, obviously movement is number one, you know, people that I, I always try, if, if, if your movement is stacked on, on top of itself, so to speak, like for example, when I'm in a tree, I don't, I don't, I don't like my limbs like, going outside of my torso, so to speak. So I try to, when I'm moving and everything, I try to function almost as like a, a tree trunk. And if I have, if I'm moving my arms or if I'm raising my binoculars or rangefinder, I'm always trying to keep everything in front of itself. How much does that help? You know what? That makes a lot of sense. 
because one of the things that I'm starting to realize is, and from what we're, the data that we're getting on the deer's visual acuity, it looks like their ability to pick up movement on a vertical plane is going to be more than in their horizontal plane, just based on the, what we just talked about, the yeah. ret, that retinal streak. Right. So movement across that, uh, you know, movement across the horizon is going to be very easy to pick up. Yeah. But movement up and down is going to be less so. So are their cones more? They're more horizontal the way the cor- the cones are stacked. Right. So that, that they're they're built and they're really you know they're land animals. It's not like they're up and down. So I mean they're you know I guess that that field of vision is is what they need. Right. And and it gets a little more detailed than that because deer have two two sets of cones. They got a short wavelength cone that's very similar to our blue cone, and then they have one that's about halfway between our reds and green. It's called it's called the medium wavelength cone. Uh, so deer don't see trichromatically like we do. They see dichromatically. They see in blues, and they see in you know they see like some something like somebody with uh, human with with uh, color blindness. Yep. Yep. Of, you know protonopia, where they're basically seeing in, in in two color bands instead of three. But the distribution of those cones is different on the eye. The blues are scattered across the entire retina, but the medium wavelength cones are scattered in that band because they can take it takes more light energy. But if you think about that as well, and one of the things we found out is with some of our trials is deer see blues about four times as well as we do. Because we have a, a filter in our eye that, that filters out a lot of the blues in, out of our, um, in our cornea. Yep. And in our lens as well. But deer don't have that filter. So their ability to see blues is just incredible. Um, which if you think about it, mornings and nighttime, what's the most common color that's still pervasive out there yeah you, you lose the upper part of the spectrum at that time of a day yeah. but deer are crepuscular and there's a lot of blues in the evening in even at night there's still yeah. a lot of ambient blues yeah i would say from the moon mm-hmm. it's it's very blue almost at nighttime right which com- you know it comes back to you think about a white tail's tail why is it white white reflects all the colors of the spectrum including blue and they, mm. they, so it shows up real well for them even better for them than it does for us Wow, that's super fascinating. Um, okay, well then move on to from the visual aspect. Um, move on to to sound. I assume this is now at a completely different. We know they can hear well, right? So. Yeah, and you know, <laughs> there's there's really only been two studies that actually looked at deer sound. We've done one of them in one in one way where we looked at it physiologically, and then some other people. Then I'll, that, that did a follow-up on that. But basically what we did is we did a study called um, where we looked at an auditory brainstem response where we actually looked at the brainwave patterns of deer that were sedated in response to playing different sounds. And this was the t- technique they would use for infants or people that were you know, uncooperative subjects to get an idea of what their hearing capabilities are. And basically what we found is that doesn't tell you how sensitive their ears are, but it tells you where their range of hearing is. Yep. And what we found in doing that study is that their range of hearing is shifted a little bit into the higher wavelengths than ours is, or at higher frequencies than ours, ours is, about two octaves. But they're hearing about the same, they're hearing in about the same range. They don't hear way up into the ultrasonic, like where those deer whistles that people used to put on their vehicles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah they don't hear that, and they don't hear as well into the low parts. Okay. Well, after we did that study, there was a, a, a father-son team up at the University of Toledo that actually did what is called a behavioral audiogram. 
where they actually train the deer to respond, just kind of like Pavlov's dog type mm-hmm. thing, to, re- to respond to a stimuli, then to, to let them know that they actually heard that sound. And they were able to plot out that uh, audiogram, and it turns out that our study was exactly right, that they're shifted about two octaves uh, higher than ours are. But the neat part of it was they could actually get a, an idea of what their uh, hearing capabilities were. Yep. And it turns out deer don't hear that much better than we do. They just hear on a different tone. Yeah, and it's and it's really you know the deer's hearing is really not their hearing capability is not that much different than 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 what ours is, which surprises a lot of people. They say, "Well, yeah. I, I know the deer hear better than I do." You would think it could gather more just because of the sound of the of the co- of the actual ear itself. Well, let's we'll get to that the ears first, you know. But we're talking about what what actually gets inside the deer's ears first. Okay. The reason that it's shifted into the higher octaves is that animals that have you know, sound localization is very important, and how that's done is how the, is the difference in how how those different wave wavelengths frequencies get to the deer's ear at different times. And animals that have wide set ears can process that, that can localize with lower pitch sounds. But as the ears get closer and closer and closer together, they need higher pitch sounds to be able to localize that. And if you look at a deer's ears in their head, they're they're only a couple inches apart, right? Yeah, compared to compared like to a muley or an elk, or or compared you know compared to ours. Yeah, you yeah. know, and so so that's that's the one aspect of it. The other aspect, and you know, people think that deer are so good at hearing things because they they know that deer hear stuff when they're sitting in a deer stand. The deer picks up its head and listens, right? And we didn't hear anything. Yeah, but I think it's not as much that they we didn't hear what they heard. Deer spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year in the woods. They know what they're supposed to hear, and yep. they know what they're not supposed to hear. Yeah. And just like if you dropped a nickel or a dime on the floor, you could identify what that is. Or if you're listening to your truck and your truck makes an unusual noise, you can identify what that is. Deer know what they're supposed to hear, and they know what they're not supposed to hear. Yeah. Which gives them, you know, allows them to filter out a lot of noise to identify what's really biologically meaningful to them. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I'm relating that to uh, the other day I was in my my archery room, and I can't hear very good. My ears ring from years of waterfowl hunting as a kid and not having hearing protection ever. Um, <laughs> that, that was never never put in front of me by, by any of my parents. But um, I was in my archery room the other day, and I can't hear very well. My ears ring. But I could hear a mouse just chewing on something in the wall. And I'm like, what is that? And someone's like, what? But I'm in there so much that I know what the white noise of the room is to where, to me, that stood out. And I had to go find it. I'm like, I can hear it. I don't know where it is, but I can hear it. So is that kind of the same thing? That's exactly the same thing. You know, that they, that they, they know what they're supposed to hear and they know what they're not supposed to hear. So then, then the next step is that's just their ears, but then they've got these big, large outer ears, mm-hmm. which is actually that helps accentuate sound that's going into the ear. Right. And it's like you, and it probably could raise it as much as it, you know, for some frequencies, as much as 20 decibels difference. Wow. But what it means is when a deer's got its ears cupped forward or cupped towards an object, it can enhance the sound that's coming in there, just like you putting your hand to your ear, right? Yep. yep. But what it also does is it minimizes the sound from behind. Okay which is why deer have mobile ears and why they're constantly twitching them around because that allows them to enhance the sound from a particular area. So if you're going to make a noise in a stand, don't do it while the ears are cupped towards you. For, you know, <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. wait till they're cupped a different direction. Um, it's funny because years ago, 
I was moose hunting for the first time. This was a long time ago. And my guide, whom I respect a lot, his name's Bert. He told me, he said, listen, you know, when it comes to moose hunting, he's like, you know, we're going to call. And once, once we call, they will know right where we're standing. Like he goes, it doesn't matter how far away we hear that grunt. Like they know exactly where we're standing. And he said, and if you want to be successful, he said, if that bull answers a mile away until he gets there, you cannot make any sound that is the same as what we would make that relates to anything. He goes, Velcro, a wrapper, an arrow being knocked, loading your release on. He's like, none of that will fly. He said, but if you need to reposition, if you're going to break sticks, like he's like, don't worry about, you know, moving a branch out of your way. Don't worry about, you know, breaking a stick on the ground. He's like, they'll accept that. But as soon as you do something that's essentially a foreign object to the wilderness, he said, it's done. It'll be done. And I've, once he told me that, I started to pay attention to how many times hunters do that when they call deer and then the deer are like, they go from not really knowing what's going on to then being in like an identification mode. And it, right, they and, start paying attention. And in that identification mode, you've almost, you know, you've like, you, you've blown the warning whistle so anything that you do as a bow hunter, you know, if you blow a grunt tube and then all of a sudden you, you know, put your rangefinder down and it hits a buckle, like to them immediately, they know where that sound comes from. And then now all of a sudden, if they can identify it as a foreign, then it's over. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people don't, don't pay attention to that because the animals are so far, but once they know where you're at, a foreign noise from that location from my experience is like make or break well yeah and if they can hear that grunt call at that distance they can hear those foreign noises at that right. distance as well right i've had kind of the same experience with a guy that one of the first guys that ever showed me about hunting with rattle and yeah. rattling antlers when he started rattling his antlers he wasn't just sitting there tickling antlers and rattling them together he started rolling around basically on the ground and he was beating brush and you know yeah. making it sound like a deer was yeah, yep, yep. And that's what they were supposed to hear. Hearing just antlers by itself is not typically what a buck hears when there's a you know, a sparring match or a fight going on. Yeah, sometimes I've tied my uh my antlers onto my bow rope so I can you know, essentially like jig them to where it's they're cracking together and hitting the hitting the tree trunk and dragging mm. across the leaves and things like that because in some ways, it does sound more realistic. I had a buddy of mine in Iowa uh, two years ago, I think. He drew a tag, and we went out mid-morning. I told him, I said, you know, we're going to be rattling. It was prime rut. And I told him, I said, when I, when we're going to rattle, like you, everything has to be ready. Head on a swivel, be ready. You know, once we make the decision to call, then... At that point, you know, it's like finger on the trigger type thing. Mm -hmm. So he said, yeah, okay, okay, I get it. So I start rattling, and I'm going around. I can see he's, like, looking around. Well, you know, I'm rattling 
for a little bit and then I kind of put the horns to the side and I'm sitting tucked up tight against a tree and I'm just kind of pivoting my eyeballs around and it was maybe only a minute or two and I looked down and he's already like I heard his zipper on his jacket and he's like pulling his phone out and he's trying to like insta story you know you know we just rattled blah 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 and so I had to tell him like dude when we make that call it could happen instantly it could happen 20 minutes from now like I've just noticed from being in the timber enough that mature deer they spend more time like frozen listening than they do moving especially especially if they're in like a locate mode or if they're in a place that they're not a hundred percent fully comfortable like their waiting game is level 10 how long they can stay in a fixed position and like you said just now i know why but i've you know i've had times where i've just been scanning with binoculars and i've been lucky enough to pick up a buck as he's like just sneaking onto the edge of a field and then he just puts the ears forward and he just freezes and you're like what's he looking at and 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 it's like this chess match he just doesn't move and it and it's amazing how long I've seen mature deer just do that. And I'm thinking, what are they looking at? What are they looking at? But now this makes sense. They're looking at everything. They're actually doing both. They're picking yeah. up whatever sound they can hear, anything yeah. and that's unusual. But at the same time, when a deer is moving, it's hard for them to sense something else moving. Right, yeah. But when they're stationary, then that's when they pick up the movement of something else. Yeah, that's that's super fascinating. It ma- It makes a lot of sense. And it makes sense, too, why people that are still in the stand or prevent foreign sound from the stand are more successful. I mean, it's simple stuff like um, during the rut, I put all my peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in paper towels. You know, I don't wrap them in saran wrap Mm. or, you know, I pull my candy bars out out of their wrappers, you know, because... Even if you're looking around and you feel like you're seeing everything, a mature deer, it some of them it doesn't take but one thing that they're not 100% sure with to where they're just not going to chance it. They can go a different direction. You know, they can, some of them just don't roll the dice. There are certainly some that, that do. There's been times where I've had a deer like look at me and be like, you can see they're, they're kind of processing what you know what's my odds here and you see them like rolling the dice in their mind and then they're like ah i'll just i'll just go with it and then they're dead you know right. and that was but some you're like what i didn't even some are like so like they don't gamble at all well they didn't get to be that old and at that age by being stupid yeah you know, and being you know not taking by taking chances you know so. yeah it's it's the ones that are really shy that are the ones that are going to get old. Yep. And we talked about that a little bit um, the other day. We talked about, because I, 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 I didn't go into much detail, but I raised deer as a teenager. Um, and deer, and I bottle fed a lot of them. Deer have very, very different temperaments. Just like, you know, you have a litter of puppies. There's certain ones where you're like, you know, this one just 
gets into trouble. This one's always biting the other ones. This one is just like, put me in a corner by myself. And deer the same way. They all have very, very different personalities. Yeah, I call them deer analogies. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but they do. And, and it's exactly right. And even mature bucks. You know, I oftentimes get the question, particularly from outdoor writers, says, well, what do mature bucks do? And, you know, well, it depends on the mature buck because every one of them is different. And you yeah. can't hunt every buck. If you're hunting a particular buck, you got to learn that buck. We've, yep. we've, you know, we've put out you know, GPS collars now on lots of mature bucks. And it's just fascinating how many different, how, how these animals behave so differently. Some animals are homebodies. They just, you know, just hang out in a very localized area. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like, all, you know, some guys going to the corner bar, you know. Yeah, yeah I guess, <laughs> yeah. But then there's other ones that just decide they're going to, they're just going to just greatly increase their range trying to maximize the opportunity of running into an estrus doe. Yeah. But they also take much more risk doing that because they might run into a bigger buck. They yeah. might run into a highway, you know. So uh, it's very risky behavior being mature and a roamer so you feel like the the timid bucks are a lot of times the ones that get the oldest it it seems to be you know there's there are you've probably experienced some of these bucks particularly some of these like two and a half and three and a half year old bucks that are just really randy mm-hmm. they're they're running all over the place or they're, they're like the high school kid you know that's the um starf on the football team or something yeah. like that you know yeah. and but they're they're real real cocky and they're they don't last long yeah but it's those ones that are real shy i've seen four and five year old deer that are just where i've i've killed them and i thought god was that a stupid thing like you didn't take any precaution mm-hmm. and and you know and you're right like that deer obviously they're never going to be seven right whereas if you have these other deer where you know you see them at two and a half you're like that's a cool deer but i'm not gonna not gonna you know I'm going to let them get a little older. And then all of a sudden they, they hit three and they're just vanished for, you know, I've had deer vanish for two or three years where you're like, you'll get, you can see them in the summer, but then you're just like, where, what do these things do? But they're just, you know, they're, they're not like in the first doe chases. They're not, you know, it seems like, um, I had this one buck, I called him demolition, and he was definitely a fighter, but he wasn't a fighter outside of his like little, he had a, a I called it a rut corridor mm-hmm. and I, I found it by hunting an observation. I was hunting what I call an observation stand and it's a stand that I have more on the perimeter of a farm to where I don't really know what's going on yet for deer activity. It's normally during the first part of the rut. So instead of just charging in where I'm assuming like there's some of the first does and heat or whatever, I normally will hunt the the perimeter first and try to see activity. And if I can, you know, hear a lot of activity or I see chasing in certain Mm -hmm. sections, then I'll try to centralize there. But this one time I was in a stand and I kept seeing these younger bucks come by me and then about... 20 minutes later, they would go by me the other direction and a tine would be off or half the rack would be gone. And I'm like, what is going on? And it was, it was like the whole day. So then that next morning I went closer to where they were going. And as the sun came up, here's this buck that I had summertime pictures of. And he was a very old, mature deer. And he it's almost like the does would come to him within 
I'm guessing it was maybe a half acre like thicket and he would just sit in there with the doe and just swivel and when things would try to as soon as things got within his range he would destroy them mm-hmm. but he wouldn't like chase them out it seemed like for whatever reason like the does that were going there he wasn't chasing them they were coming to him and i watched this same thing for for 3 years on this buck and what was frustrating about it was his little corridor was a hundred yards on my neighbor's property. (laughs) So I watched it. I mean, I watched it multiple, multiple days. He ended up dying from EHD, sadly. Mm -hmm. Um, But just his demeanor for as vicious as he was when he decided to fight, I made the mistake two times of rattling to him. And like one time he was sitting there tending a doe. He wasn't looking at me. The wind was in my face. The wind was kind of coming towards me but on a slight quarter and I rattled and I remember he spun around and he like looked right towards where he thought I was and he immediately just went like on a 90 away for probably 150 yards and then he did like a 300 yard button hook around me to identify like he wasn't he wasn't dumb enough to just come to it. Right. He wanted to do something about it, but he, like, he was so smart with doing it. And I never really put, I knew he got, like, tried to get downwind of me, but I didn't, like, at that time it didn't register just how smart he was. But then it might have been that season or it might have been the next season. I saw him and I grunted to him. And he did the exact same thing. And when I and when he smelled me, he was just gone. And then one of my neighbors ended up saying, "Hey, I got a picture of demolition yesterday," and this was like a mile and a half away. And it was then that I told myself, "I'm like, this deer, no matter how much you want to, you cannot call to him. Like he's, you know, for whatever reason, like he has a very, he's shy, but he's not. You know, he's like." He's okay to fight, but, like, the fighting has to be, like, on his, ter- on his terms 100% or he's not doing it. So it was it was interesting. And then you see the next buck that's, like, not even in his realm, and that thing will just charge in, like, you know, here we go. Different personalities, different yep. deer analogies, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly right. That yeah, makes that makes a lot of sense what you talked about as well, because one of the things we've also noticed with a lot of a deer we've had radio callers when we're radio calling does, that there's a certain percentage of these does that will go on a breeding excursion. That when they when it's t- their time, they might not be happy with what they have there. That they need want to go out and they want to be select. They want to be able to select the buck that they want to breed to. They're not just passive on trays for these bucks. They start running them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're they're doing part of the selection as well for the particular buck. Have you found um, bucks to ever about when they hit three years old to like leave that normal home range and be gone for years, but then all of a sudden come back in their later years, like towards right at the tail end of their peak. It w- it was kind of close to that we had a, a study in louisiana uh, on national wildlife refuge there where we had some mature bucks with gps colors on and we had one particular buck who spent the entire summer uh on this re- on this refuge in, in a little core area his home range probably wasn't just a couple hundred acres um spent the entire summer there in some bean fields 
and then I, I, I don't remember the exact date, but let's just say for, for giggles, it was August, uh, September 28th. September 28th in the fall, he just took off and left. And he set up a winter range five miles away. He stayed there until March 5th, turned around and came back on March 5th. The next year, he did it again on the exact same, same days. days. Now, how how they know that, I have no idea, but he did it on the exact same day. And ultimately, he got killed. I would have been... Love to see if he would have done a trifecta on it. I think people that um, I think people that are really seasoned at trail cameras. I bet you they. I bet everyone at some point has a story like that where a buck disappears almost within the same two to three days every year. And on my place, I have a rule. Um, on my place in Iowa, I have a rule that during the late season. I won't shoot any buck that I'm familiar with. If it's late season and if he's made it through both shotgun seasons, if I see a buck during the late season hunt that I know is a local, um, and not necessarily a local to like right where I hunt, but if I've got history of him in that area, then in my mind, he's like, he survived. And he, you know, unless it was a world-class deer, but if it's an average deer, I'm, I want to let it, you know, I know that he made it. So my mission as a, you know, as a, I guess as a hunter during the late season is I always want a deer that I, that I don't necessarily know or that, or maybe that I know, but I know he's not technically one of my local deer. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing to me how many times I only see very specific deer like three days after gun season like the opener of gun season it's like once those initial drives happen wherever that buck like i don't even know where some of these bucks summer or where they live but i just know that like once those first big pieces of pressure get put on them they seek self you know they seek refuge to the exact same spot where they were almost safe that very first year that they made it there. Mm -hmm. So as soon as they sense it again, they're like, oh, man, there's the guns. There's the Orange Army. Last year I went there and it was okay. And then all of a sudden they make it like the next year. And the next thing you know, I've had bucks where it's three or four years in. I'm like hunting them during the regular season. And then finally it dawned on me like, duh, they're not here then. These things are only here. December 18th like that's when they're here they're that that buck mm -hmm. you know don't don't hold out during the rut for that buck because right. that buck's going to be here as soon as wherever he's hunted they go in there on those last two days of gun season and do their push because it's like their desperation move and and he doesn't tolerate it and he's like I'm out and then he goes to that spot have you seen some of that as well? <laughs> it's interesting. I'll give you an example of something very similar to that. Uh, we had some, uh, a study up in Pennsylvania where we had some GPS callers out on some mature bucks as well. And we had this one particular buck on the night before deer season opened up in Pennsylvania when the Orange Army hit in Pennsylvania, you know. Um, he was, this was all, all on public land. This deer was seven years old, believe it or not, on public land <laughs> in yeah. Pennsylvania. Yeah. But he was right near uh, a, a small town, not very far. We got a location not far from a, from a house, uh, and 
you can see when 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 the opening morning started, he was moved. He moved a little bit away from that house, and then you can see where he got bumped at nine o'clock in the morning. He got bumped at nine o'clock in the morning. He went about three miles to a, a mountain laurel thicket, and he spent two weeks in that mountain laurel thicket and never came out. Yep. And so he knew when, what was up, and when 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 deer season was over, then he started moving again. Yeah. Do you think deer can communicate that sort of knowledge? Or do you think they follow each other and they learn by the fact that they were safe there? I don't think that they communicate that. They might go with somebody and learn it. Uh, we know that there's a lot of lot of these traditional things that are communicated from mothers through their fawns, like the, where traditional wintering ranges are or where, you know, particularly where in some mountainous areas where a, a natural salt lake would be or something like that. They, commu- they communicate them through generations. Do you, when it comes to like um, food sources, when a, you know, like say, it's funny to me, I'll I'll normally leave uh, corn and stuff standing. I'll leave row crop standing. And then once, um, if I'm, if it's a corn year, once it's like a day before, two days before uh, archery season opens back up, I'll normally go in and just mow it, you know, mow down with a bush hog, like, you know, in front of my blinds. It's amazing to me. There'll be like one deer there the first day and be like, Oh, this is mode. And then all of a sudden the next day or day, there's like 15. So how do they communicate that? Well, I don't know that they are communicating that other than, you know, some of those deer may have been with some of those deer at, at a certain time. And you don't know how many times those deer might've come through there in the time that you weren't there too. You know, just passing in da- you know their daily movements and such. I don't so. think that they have though. I think well, <laughs> if it like if it was an attractant, I would say okay, that deer went. It's still on you know some of their scent glands. Now it's in a bedding area, and they're kind of like, wait, this this guy found something really tasty. So I'm gonna follow him tonight when they're heading to their food source. You're putting an awful lot into a deer's head. <laughs> Maybe, but ants do it. Yeah, well, well they, ants, ants all live in the same colony. If a animal, if a deer, which is you know, food resources are very important for them. If they find a food resource, why would it be a, a, an advantage to them to communicate that to another deer? That would be competition. So they, it, it would make much more sense evolutionarily that they would be very secretive about that instead of communicating it. I don't know. I've I've seen times where you just randomly put food in a location and all of a sudden it's just the first day there's like one deer there and then the next day, even if you have a camera there, it's not like stuff's coming by. And then all of a sudden the next day it's like, I mean, and granted, maybe they're passing downwind and they smell it and then, and then come into it. But, yeah, that's um, – do you think cut corn would smell that different than – corn and a husk it would <laughs> right <laughs> right if you well it, it may have a much more intense smell it, it could yeah i mean because obviously you've got like the dust particles and stuff but <laughs> yeah i mean i'm sitting there thinking i know they can relate to sound like i know if you combine they know like they know what that is they right. can be in the timber they know like this this and a lot of times deer are curious they hear a tractor and they know Something new is getting put in the ground. Something new's got taken off. There could be food there. 
and they'll come and look and a lot you know and i've had times where i just plant a food plot and i've seen them right away come out and they kind of look and you can kind of see them like oh this will be how many times you've had farmers tell you they were out combining or out plowing or something like that and there's a buck watching them do it all every day every day yeah yeah every day and that's why you know for me um during the late season i think one of the best hunting tactics if you're late season late season hunting food sources because the toughest part about it is getting in and out because they're very concentrated just like you know, we're hunting here on the East Shore. They've There's actually, I think, a second gun season right now. We're having to wear orange. Um, they're not gun hunting um, where we're at, but we can hear shots, like, surrounding us. But the deer are super sensitive to pressure right now. So, you know, going in on a natural machine that they hear on a day-to-day basis is 100% the best tactic mm-hmm. you know whether it's a tractor whether it's a farmer that drives his truck around the field every time um i remember the first time i really learned this and it wasn't a farmer it was actually a trapper um i had permission to hunt this place in iowa i was a non-resident but i went there and three mornings in a row it's like nine in the morning prime time it's you know november 10th and here comes a Chevy truck around the field. And I didn't know what he was doing, but it was a trapper. And he checked his trap line every day at the same exact time. And for like four consecutive years, I killed bucks on that field, but just like nothing before nine. Mm-hmm. Because they, you know, they were okay with it, but they also knew when to not be there. Right. You know, but he did the same thing every time. So him driving around that field and pulling a 22 out and going pop and then like, you know, resetting his trap and getting in his truck and slamming the door and, you know, the bumper hitch rattling around as he, like to them, they, they had acclimated to that. And it wasn't, I was more paranoid of it than, than the deer were. Yeah. So, you know, then you wonder why people wonder why that they show up with their property with their four wheeler in the back of the truck and they go riding into the stand, pull right up to the stand, why they don't see deer anymore. You know, it's like, if you haven't done it. If you haven't done it, that's that's all new. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Deer can be habituated to just about anything. You can have them standing on the runway, right beside the runway at an airport, you know, when it, with an yeah, airplane taking yeah, off. Yeah, and I've seen that. Yeah, it, it, so they get it when they realize it's not danger, but it's that constant, you know, you see them on the side of the interstate too, mm-hmm. that, that constant presence, but it's the novel presence is what they wor- they're worried yeah, about. Yeah, yep. Well, listen, man, we need to... Uh, We've got to do another podcast because this one's uh, we got to wrap this one up, but we need to do another one. We need to talk. We need to talk like more specific to camo and you know s- sounds from the stand and and things like that because you're the and plug something. You're the perfect person um, for that because your your knowledge is astounding it's been super fun i appreciate appreciate you coming on but i've really enjoyed meeting you it's oh it's all, always fun to talk about deer you know? <laughs> <laughs> i got the perfect job in the world i get to talk about deer all the time you know yeah well yeah you do mm-hmm. i would argue archery is the perfect job mm-hmm. but that's you know deer second deer second one thing like here's one last thing is how similar is elk to what you're finding with with deer um, 
it's very likely that they're 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 very similar as far as the basics of their their uh, their different um, their senses. We didn't do any work. I haven't done any work with elk specifically. When we were doing some of our hearing stuff, we did some work with fallow deer as well as whitetail, mm-hmm. and they were identical. Okay. So yeah. you would, you would figure that an elk would be about the same as well, and the same thing would would show up for the vision stuff as well. Would it? Uh, I guess from a sound point of view, do you think it could be argued that their sound is a little bit better just because their ears are larger? Obviously, they have bigger cones. I find that elk, because they're so big, they tolerate more sound than deer by far. Because when they move, like, especially if you call an elk, you know, if you cow call to an elk or bull call, like, you can break a twig or, you know, like, they're not, they can be incredibly quiet for how big they are, like, mind-blowingly quiet. But you can also work into an elk harem making way more noise than what I would ever deem possible with a whitetail. Yeah, well, you remember, they're they're a herd animal, so they're used to noises of other animals moving as yeah. well. So it's, it's, it's a very different. Whitetails, whitetails of all the all the deer species are probably the most skittish of all of them, yep. the, most, the most cautious of them. And they, they've got a different different way of avoiding predation. You know, elk are out in open country, so yeah. they, they decide to try to see the predation coming quick. Uh, and then take then you know the whole herd moves on deer are a wait and wait and see what's going to happen and then exploding uh, you know <laughs> to get the heck out of there yeah. right you know so th- they have this this flight fighter fl- there's this flight explosive flight behavior yeah and you know that's what the other thing we've noticed as well sometimes deer instead of responding by running away sometimes they hold tight and you probably had that experience yeah. mm-hmm. that until you make eye contact with that deer that deer would even particularly some bucks you can be walking right by them, and as soon as you turn and make eye contact with them, they pick that up, and then they're gone. Yeah. Because the eyes tell it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have experienced. I've had times where does just start to, like, where they just peg me for no reason, and I just look away. It's like, don't look at them. <laughs> it, it works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it does. Yeah. All right. Well, cool, man. I appreciate it. I'm going to have you back. Uh, I think we can dive into some super cool topics. Um with some of my other buddies that that I think are going to really relate to some very very similar topics, but uh, is there anywhere people could look up some of your stuff? I mean, I'm sure people are going to be fascinated to dig into more. Yeah, we there, there's actually a number of YouTube YouTube videos out there on some of our stuff. The the Outdoor Channel, the Sportsman's Channel did did some of them. Uh, you can just Google my name, and that's Carl with a K, Carl yeah. Miller. Uh, we have our our, res- uh, our website is ugadeerresearch.org. Yep. They could look at there as well and see a lot of the stuff, the different si- publications that we've done yeah, are all posted there. And I would highly recommend you do it. Um, every time I've sat down and talked with them, I've learned something new. So for any of you out there that are new to hunting or veteran hunters, you're going to pick something up. I can guarantee you. Thanks again, man. I really appreciate it. Enjoyed it. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. knockonarchery.com